In the 1800s, yellow fever wiped out thousands of Southerners in America's port cities, and the poor were often the hardest hit. Many of the doctors and the health officials at the time were slow to react. They didn't want to take it seriously. They knew it would be bad for business if they did. So they downplayed these cases and and said, well, you know, these are just filthy accommodations. These are really filthy people. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we explore yellow fever's little-known history. Later in the show, guess who never said, let them eat cake? But first, before the coronavirus pandemic, there was the yellow fever pandemic. Yellow fever brought in by ships was once such a pervasive threat in the hot and humid South that port cities had quarantines for vessels arriving from infected nations. For instance, in Norfolk, Virginia, they had a road called Quarantine Road, where merchants would travel and stay in quarantine for 12 days before entering the city. Annette Finley Crosswhite is a professor of history at Old Dominion University. She says a lot of the yellow fever plague that happened in Norfolk in 1855 has been unexplored because of who was affected. Annette, tell me about the 1855 yellow fever outbreak in the port city of Norfolk. How bad was that? It was devastating. The city of Norfolk had a population before this fever outbreak of around 14,000 people. When the outbreak was over, there were only 6,000 left. It doesn't necessarily mean that all those individuals died. Some just fled the city. Anybody with money and means got out of Norfolk. But because the city was so depopulated, either from death or abandonment, it totally changed the history of Norfolk and the economic future of the city. Do we know for relative sure how many died and who they were? The statistics say that in Norfolk, 2,300 people died, and in Portsmouth, 900 people died. However, we know that the deaths of the poor weren't necessarily recorded. And so as a result, the figure of 3,000 deaths is usually used, but we know that it was much greater than that. Was there a lot of newspaper coverage of this at the time? There was a great deal of newspaper coverage about it because... Southern port cities feared yellow fever. It, it was not an uncommon disease. And in fact, two years earlier in 1853, there had been a horrific epidemic in New Orleans. So Savannah, Charleston, New Orleans, Norfolk, the southern port cities with high humidity and lots of mosquitoes because yellow fever is connected to mosquitoes, suffered throughout the 19th century numerous yellow fever outbreaks. The 1855 experience in Norfolk and Portsmouth just happened to be extreme. So this is called the yellow fever outbreak. It killed thousands. Is yellow fever the same as malaria? And what does it do to you? Well, it's not the same as malaria. It is a virus, and it's transmitted to humans via mosquitoes. It was endemic in Africa, And in Africa, the transmission usually went from monkey to mosquito to human. So a a mosquito would bite a monkey with the virus and then transmit it to the human. And that produced a mild case of yellow fever. And then the individual would enjoy lifelong immunity thereafter. In the United States, the disease was most often transmitted from sick individual to mosquito to the person who would come down with it. So when the the virus is transmitted from human to human, so human to human via the mosquito vector, the case of yellow fever is much, much worse, and the symptoms are horrific. So what do they think actually caused the 1855 yellow fever outbreak in Norfolk? When yellow fever outbreaks occurred in the Caribbean, they knew that ships coming from the Caribbean could bring yellow fever. And so the practice throughout the whole beginning in Norfolk, Virginia, around 1783, but in port cities along the coast throughout the 
late 17th and 18th century, quarantine stations were established. And so ships would come to port and they would report to a quarantine station. There would be a conversation between the quarantine station master and the captain of the ship. And ships would oftentimes, if they were coming from, say, in this case, St. Thomas, would stay at quarantine for 12 days, two weeks before they'd be let go. And so in the case of the Ben Franklin, the ship that brought yellow fever to Norfolk, it had come from St. Thomas. The ships in those days couldn't travel to New York from St. Thomas without stopping somewhere. And so Norfolk was a convenient port city. The captain en route had already had two sick sailors. And so when he came into quarantine station, he didn't report that those six sailors had died of yellow fever. He didn't tell the truth. And so after 12 days, the Ben Franklin was allowed to proceed to a shipyard in Portsmouth and yellow fever broke out in that area around the shipyard. And then not too long thereafter, it was transmitted as well to Norfolk. Was there sort of a scapegoat? The way the U.S. is blaming China now, was there blame to go around by the people of Norfolk and nearby? Absolutely. In the 19th century, before the advent of germ theory, doctors even equated disease with poverty. And so in a place like Norfolk, the poor immigrant section of Norfolk was inhabited by Irish immigrants. And that poor part of Norfolk, an area called Barry's Row, which was down by the docks, was the first part of Norfolk where the first yellow fever victims were identified. And so many of the doctors and the health officials at the time were slow to react. They didn't want to take it seriously. They knew it would be bad for business if they did. So they downplayed these cases and and said, well, you know, these are just filthy accommodations. These are really filthy people. And very few people have died. And it's really just tied to these, these poor Irish people. So they were wrong. They were terribly wrong. And by downplaying it, they, they really created a situation where the city was absolutely going to suffer. Was there anything also comparable to businesses not wanting to shut down, in addition to doctors saying, this is confined to poor people? Well, the public health officials in general didn't want to make too much of it because they were afraid that business leaders would leave the city. And that's exactly what happened when the outbreak was quite obvious, going to be very serious. And Norfolk, before 1855, really seemed to be enjoying a period of growth. It's got this incredible deep port, and so there was speculation that it was going to rival Boston or New York. And many wealthy men and bankers and commercial agents had moved here not too long before 1855 to grow the city. And, of course, they all fled, and many of them never, ever came back. Did most people survive, but many die once they became infected? You know, because we can't coincide that figure of 2,300 with the numbers that actually died from it, um, it's hard to speculate in terms of did most people die that, that got it. What I can tell you is that The yellow fever transmission is particularly horrible. People start out with a fever, and obviously they feel very bad, and their eyes turn yellow, their skin turns yellow, where you get the the term yellow fever. But it's when yellow fever takes a kind of second deadly turn where people begin to hemorrhage inside their bodies um, so that blood squirts out of their ears and their noses and their eyes and they begin to projectile vomit, what's called black vomit, or it's digested blood, obviously. There's protein in the urine and they they really die of of renal failure because they just quit producing urine. And... So it's it's absolutely painful. And the black vomit, I mean, all the sources talk about the black vomit. I, I think that once the black vomit began, you knew the person was going to die. Oh, what a hideous way to go. So many parents did die. Who took care of the children? What became of the orphans? 
Well, the story of the orphans is really fascinating because there were just so many of them, and there's no good end to this story. Many doctors came from around the East Coast. There were ads in papers as far north as New York. Um, Please, doctors, please come to Norfolk, Virginia. Please, if you're a nurse, come to Norfolk, Virginia. The other part of healthcare in this city and really maintaining the vital resources and services of the city were the African-American slaves and the free blacks who were here. They seemed to enjoy immunity from the disease or only get mild cases. And so all of the accounts that you read There are stories about slaves who refused to abandon their families, their owners, uh, the owner's family, when the owners had died and their just little children left, and so the slaves would stay. There are actually stories of slaves from further north sending money to Norfolk. And I have an account here I wrote down, if I could just read a slave writes, here's 10 cents. It's a small piece, but it's every cent I have in this world. And if it can help in providing some nourishment for the many orphans in the city, I know that they're crying and I'm sending it to you. That is just phenomenal. It, it stuns me. Absolutely. It's a, that's a beautiful um, little, little quote of someone's self-sacrifice when, when he says, it's all I have in the world. You know, so whether it's slaves remaining with their owners to help them get well or to oversee their children or bring water or deal with grave digging, they held the city together while the their white owners or the white elites within the city were often so sick. Did the yellow fever quarantine period of 1855 also reveal, as the pandemic does today, the disproportionate effect on the lower income and the population that has fewer resources? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, in the 19th century, people with money could flee and the poor couldn't. So that meant the poor were going to be more susceptible to the disease because they were here, right? They were stuck here. And they were also being blamed for it. So there could have been, I would assume, it was harder for them to find help and find treatment because so often um, the poor were identified as the cause of the disease. So that was problematic. But even today, I think when you look at this history of yellow fever, that there's a huge chapter of African-American history that just hasn't been told. And so that in and of itself answers your question. Intellectually, when we look at this, it's often told from a white perspective. And I think that there's a rich history here that could be told from the African-American perspective. Annette Finley, Crosswhite, thank you for sharing your insights on this with me today and with good reason. Thank you so much. Annette Finley, Crosswhite, is a professor of history at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, Marie Antoinette's secret library of banned books. It turns out Marie Antoinette was no ditz, and she never said let them eat cake, and the last queen of France was actually a voracious reader. Ron Schechter is a professor of history at William & Mary. He's writing a book about Marie Antoinette's secret library. Ron, it's shocking to hear you say Marie Antoinette never said, let them eat cake. It's sort of the one thing most of us think we know about her, right? Right. It is It is shocking. And what's interesting about it is that at the time, her enemies did not say that she said, let them eat cake. It was something that developed about 100 years later. You are writing a book about many of the misconceptions we have about Marie Antoinette and have done a deep dive, especially into her reading habits. How did you discover what you've come to call Marie Antoinette's secret library? It first came to my attention that Marie Antoinette had a library about 30 years ago when I was a graduate student. I saw a footnote in something that had absolutely nothing to do with Marie Antoinette that mentioned a book called Marie Antoinette's Library. I looked at the book, and it was a catalog by her personal librarian, And it was essentially a list of books that she owned. 
And I thought that that was curious. I was surprised because I had the impression that most people have of Marie Antoinette as uh, being more interested in her physical appearance and in, uh, in, in parties and in pleasure than she would have been in reading. Um, maybe 10 or 20 years later, when I was teaching courses, I would occasionally mention this to my students, and they were fascinated and they wanted to know more about it. And that was a cue to me that this was the sort of thing that people would find interesting. Why do you call it a secret library? I mean, was it secret or just little known? Well, it was, it was certainly little known. There were very few people who knew about it. Uh, I think one might call it an open secret. There were, she, she kept these books in a very private set of rooms that only uh, her closest relatives and closest friends and a few ladies-in-waiting had access to. What should we understand about the library? How big and what kind of books? Well, it was big. It had over 10,000 books, subversive books, the sort of thing that you would get thrown into the Bastille for selling. For example, she had the collected works of Rousseau, and Rousseau was a political philosopher who had the very radical idea that we are equal, that we are naturally equal, and that as a result of that, we have equal rights, including the right to self-government. Well, that was an idea that in 18th century France, in an absolute monarchy, where the king didn't owe his power to anyone but God, who didn't have to share his power at all, that was a radical idea. So Rousseau is one example. Uh, she even had a book by a philosopher who was an atheist and who made the argument that, uh, that all religion was invented by powerful people as a means of keeping the ordinary people in a state of fear and intimidation. So these are the sorts of things. I mean, imagine her husband is, in addition to being the king, is the head of the Catholic Church in France. And so these are books that call his rights into question, that make fun of or directly attack the church that's the underpinning of society. Some of these books that she had, he himself as king, had banned. Exactly, exactly. She had over 100 books that in one way or another were banned, either uh, by the state, which meant, for example, they had a very colorful way of dealing with dangerous books, which is that the books were sentenced in the same way that a person would be sentenced, uh, to be torn apart and burned by the public executioner. Guillotine the books, right? Well, in fact, another way of dealing with these books is that there was a pulping room in the Bastille where books were sent that were considered to be dangerous. And there's a list of the books that were sent there. Were there also racy books, or were they mostly banned because they fomented political anarchy? There were a lot of racy books. They weren't explicit but they often left very little to the imagination. Were the racy ones banned or just there for her pleasure? Well, some of them were banned. Some of them weren't. Some of them were, I think, not considered to be important enough to be banned. I think there was just a sort of tacit agreement. The, the government only had so many resources and could only uh, have the censors look at so many books and make decisions about them. So I can imagine there would be 10,000 books in the Queen's personal library, at least for show. Is there any evidence she actually read them or had deep thoughts about them? Yes, there is evidence that she read them. One piece of evidence comes from the Austrian ambassador. Marie Antoinette's mother, Maria Theresa, was the head of the Austrian Empire. And it was in her interest that Marie Antoinette behave well at the court of Versailles. And the Austrian ambassador who lived at Versailles watched everything that she was doing for 10 years and wrote back very, very detailed reports 
to Maria Theresa. And he goes into great detail about how long she, how often she's reading, how long she's spending reading, in some cases, what books she's reading, because Maria Theresa uh, was very interested in her daughter's reading. She was, the first note that she sent to her daughter uh, was, was very clear about how she shouldn't read certain books, how she should keep away from books that were harmful to religion and morality. But it also shows it was not her mother who set her up with this vast library of political and philosophical thought. No, not at all. In, in fact, she was very much against it to the extent to which she knew about it. And she did want her daughter to read political philosophy and history and religion. She just, she didn't want her to read certain kinds of books, which were precisely the kinds of books that I just mentioned, racy books, anti-clerical, anti-aristocratic, those sorts of books. And and so she was not at all the person who set her up with, with the library. In fact, she was the one who really didn't want it. She was just a child when she married Louis XVI. Tell me something about that early experience and how that came to be. Well, she was the 15th of 16 children. Uh, the expectation for all of these children was that they would make good marriages, which was a way of extending Austria's influence. Uh, she was she was well-educated. This is another misconception, popular misconception about Marie Antoinette, is that she wasn't well-educated. But she had a serious formal education with a number of tutors. And what's most interesting, I think, about this story is that one of the tutors came from France and started teaching her when she was 12 years old in Vienna. And then when Marie Antoinette got married to Louis, who was crown prince, he wasn't the king yet, and moved to Versailles, he remained her tutor and continued to, to teach her. And in fact, he was one of the people most responsible for introducing her to the kinds of books that her mother didn't want her to read. Do you think that he was deliberately and quietly attempting to sway her political views? Yes, yes, I, I do think that. He was, he was very much in favor of the kinds of views that were in these books. He was very comfortable with Marie Antoinette's library. He never told her mother about it. And I think that he was trying to, he was really trying to indoctrinate her because there were two factions at court. One of them was very religious and the other one was secular. And the religious faction was also anti-Austrian and wanted France to pursue its own policies and not what Maria Theresa wanted France to do. And the tutor was of the pro-Austrian party and for that reason didn't want Marie Antoinette to get too close to these very religious people. So ultimately, when she and Louis XVI were beheaded, what became of him? Well, the tutor was also, because he was so closely associated with the royal family, uh, he fled during the revolution. He lived out the rest of his life quietly. He could see which way the wind was blowing. And in fact, Marie Antoinette uh, really urged him to leave. She stayed in France because she and the king felt it was their duty. Who else would have known about her 10,000-book library? Well, a few of Marie Antoinette's intimates at court. Uh, a number of the ladies-in-waiting. In fact, one of her ladies-in-waiting gave her uh, a set of books that turned out to be banned as uh, a present when Marie Antoinette was 17. And so she was very much aware of this library. And I should say that everybody knew that she had a lot of books. But in terms of the, the books uh, that were subversive, that were radical, this was very little known. There was a lady-in-waiting who gave her uh, a set of 24 books that the ambassador told Maria Theresa about, and he was none too happy about this. And he might not even have been aware that they were banned, but he knew of their reputation. They had a bad reputation. I am fascinated by what you have said about how we have always portrayed Marie Antoinette as sort of a ditzy queen with no empathy for the people, 
or connection to political reality. Mm. How did that come about? You used the word ditzy, and a word very close to that has been used by historians, which is dizzy. And she has been called an airhead. There, there's, been, there's been a long history of sexism uh, associated uh, with women rulers. That was certainly uh, the case at the time in the 18th century. Maria Theresa was an exception. What about her husband, the king? Was he perceived as smart at the time? Not particularly. And that's interesting. That's an interesting question because after the revolution, there weren't really that many associations with Louis XVI. I think if you were to ask people, tell me about Louis XVI, they might know that he had been executed in the French Revolution, but they wouldn't have been able to tell you any more about him. Whereas with Marie Antoinette, we already have all these things, right, that we think we know about her. If Marie Antoinette had cared so much or known so much about Concepts like the redistribution of wealth or the idea the monarchy was not God-given, she didn't put those ideas into practice or persuade her husband anyway, right? Seemingly, she could have saved her own head had she been able to do that. I don't know. I don't know about that. <clears throat> I think she was really in a bind. Uh, she couldn't have said we should really try to reform the monarchy. She just wasn't in that kind of position. There were too many people who had a stake in the monarchy being exactly as it was. And during the revolution, it was really too late for her to advocate policies that the revolutionaries were pushing. Nobody would have believed her, first of all. They would have thought that she was just trying to, to save herself and her family. How many days did she have in prison before her execution? And did she read during that period? She was in prison 14 months. And in those last three months, she was continuing to read. In fact, one of the last things that we know she requested from her jailers was, was a book. It was David Hume's History of England. One of the most famous scenes in that book is when Charles I, who was king of England, during the time of the English Revolution, was executed. And uh, he says some very, in Hume's telling, he says some very brave and noble words as he's about to go to the scaffold and he uh, forgives his enemies and he commends his soul to God. I think that Marie Antoinette was very interested in that book because she could see something very similar happening to her husband and then finally to herself. Ron Schechter is a professor of history at William & Mary. He's writing a book about Marie Antoinette's secret library. Welcome back to With Good Reason. This is an encore of an episode that originally aired in 2018. Four, three, two, one. That was the countdown to a new statue in Richmond, Virginia in July 2017. In a city known for its Confederate monuments, the 10-foot-tall bronze statue to Maggie Lena Walker breaks the mold. It's the first one dedicated to a woman, and she was born to a formerly enslaved woman. Coming up next, the story behind this new monument in the former capital of the Confederacy. Many of Richmond's Confederate monuments were erected after Reconstruction in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was during that period that a black woman named Maggie Lena Walker became the first woman in the United States to charter a bank. She was also a teacher, a mother, an activist, and a businesswoman. Recently, Maggie was honored with her own statue in Richmond. Dr. Kalita Nichols-Fairfax is an associate professor of social work at Norfolk State University and joins me to talk about the life and work of Maggie Walker. Kalita, a statue was recently erected in downtown Richmond to the great Black activist Maggie Walker. She was not only the first Black woman president and founder of a bank, she's the first woman in America to be president and found a bank. 
Absolutely. Here's a woman who perhaps is in a generation of, of my great-grandparents born around 1864 or 1865. Uh, her parents were Elizabeth Draper, who was a woman who was enslaved, freed after the Civil War, and an Irish journalist named Eccles Cuthbert. So here's a woman born uh, into uh, an interracial union. Her parents were not married during the time. Her mother worked for the Van Loo's, for Elizabeth Van Loo. And Elizabeth Van Loo was a philanthropist in the city of Richmond. And uh, Maggie Walker uh, lived with her mother and uh, eventually her, her stepfather, William Mitchell, in the Van Loo mansion. Mrs. Van Loo was said to be a spy for the North. Yes, and how many stories do we hear about uh, a Black woman being raised in this kind of environment in the 1860s and 70s, perhaps being influenced by the conversations that she heard about freedom and equality. So I believe she could have been very influenced equally by her mother and by Elizabeth Van Loo. Her mother was forced into destitution and was able to form a laundry service that Maggie helped her with. Absolutely, and I believe that's uh, Maggie Walker's first uh, experience with understanding business. You've written that she later said, helping her mother and delivering the folded, cleaned clothes to wealthy homes helped her understand even better the tremendous gap between the poor and the rich, the black and the white. Yes. One of the things that, that Maggie Walker really understood is when you develop businesses, you can assist so many people with their family lives because when people are able to work uh, decent jobs and earn a livable wage, that is a life-changing experience for families. And it's a lesson we can learn today about business development in poor neighborhoods. She became a teacher after school. She taught for three years, but when she married, she was required by state law to leave teaching and become a mother and housewife. Which irritated her. Uh, she believed <laughs> that uh, men did not have those kinds of constraints, and so women should not have those constraints either. So what was it that led her out of this domestic life and into the world of banking? Well, I do believe it started with the Independent Order of St. Luke. Uh, it administered social services to sick people, to elderly people, provided food, and she ascended to the role as Right Worthy Grand Secretary Treasurer in 1899. And so I believe that her experience provided her with the experience of running a business conglomerate because under her leadership, the order grew to over 100,000 people in 22 states and the District of Columbia, and it employed hundreds of people in different businesses, such as the St. Luke's Emporium, which was a department store. Uh, they had a regalia department, a printing shop, a newspaper, which was named the St. Luke's Herald. And then, of course, what she is really most notably known for, the St. Luke's Penny Savings Bank. What is a regalia store? So there were robes and other kinds of uniforms that were made for persons who worked in, in certain industries. And this is very significant because so many other establishments in the city of Richmond simply were not patronizing the Black community. And so having a regalia department allowed the emporium to then meet the needs of working class Blacks who needed a uniform in order to, to go to work. And so Mrs. Walker's role in the city of Richmond is incredibly important because she attended to those economic needs during a, uh, a time period when the Richmond City Council and those established white politicians and white business persons were absolutely disinterested in doing so. It's interesting she created a department store. Why was that important for the Black community? Well, many department stores in Richmond would not treat Black customers with respect, with dignity. Oftentimes, you, if you were a woman and you would walk into a store and you wanted to try on a hat or try on a, a dress, if you were black, you were not permitted to do that or you had to uh, 
go through a series of indignities to try on clothes or a head or a pair of shoes or to pay more, or if you wanted to perhaps buy something on credit, well, that wouldn't work because that was no such thing for, for many black patrons. That kind of experience infuriated the community. And I'm sure Mrs. Walker must have experienced some of that herself as a woman. She also led a successful boycott of the Richmond trolley or streetcar. What was that about? Transportation was segregated. It could also be an experience that would be terrifying and violent. One could be thrown off of a streetcar. And so Mrs. Walker and and some other leaders grew tired of that kind of experience and decided they would boycott the streetcar company in in the city of, of Richmond, very similar to what we would know years later with Mrs. Rosa Parks. When you are paying for a service, when you are simply attempting to go about your day working or raising your children or attending to business and having to be subjected to such violent, terrifying acts, it puts you in a frame of mind that you decide you are going to address it. It actually lasted two years. People walked rather than take the Richmond streetcar. Well, that was successful. When one aspect of life is become successful, <laughs> then there are other aspects about life, your, your, your living, your experience, that seems not to move anywhere or is met with great indifference or hatred. And so whereas that boycott experience, that protest experience was successful, there were other aspects that continued to be unsuccessful. So an example would be uh, Emporium. The St. Luke's Emporium, uh, which was the department store, started in 1905, but was met with great resistance from the white establishment. And it, it only lasted for six years. It closed in 1911 because those persons did not want that department store. It pulled away black customers from their own stores. They often sent letters to retailers in in New York City, encouraging them not to sell whole good products to the St. Luke's Emporium. And so these are uh, tandem experiences that the Black community has had uh, for for decades. You you find success on one hand, but then you find repression uh, on, on the other. In a paper that you co-authored about Maggie Walker's life and her leadership, you quote her saying, We realize that our family, the Negro race, is spending more than a quarter of a million dollars every week and spending that money with a family which will not recognize us as citizens, will not employ our fathers or our mothers, will not give our sisters or brothers the slightest chance to be benefited by the stream of living water, which we continually furnish daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and that without ceasing we are going to see if we can try and turn the course of that almighty stream of dollar and see if we can till our own barren lands, feed our own hungry, and clothe our own naked. 1909, Maggie Walker. Wow, and uh, if you didn't say the year... I would venture to say that just sounds like it's so applicable uh, today. Very reflective, unfortunately, of a race-based experience that has shaped and framed uh, not only the state of Virginia, but our country. Have you been following the national conversation about what to do with monuments to the Confederacy? Many of them were erected during the Jim Crow era. Richmond has so many especially along the beautiful Monument Avenue. Yes, Uh, it's a tough conversation to listen to. Monument Avenue was always this, and it still is, this picturesque, beautiful landscaped avenue with beautiful churches, mansions. Uh, In fact, when my father was a college student at Virginia Union University, uh, one of his jobs was uh, a caretaker at one of those mansions, and he hmm. worked as a caretaker as he worked his way through through college. It was always this this grand place of of opulent wealth, because you would then leave 
Monument Avenue and go to other parts of, of the city and you could definitely compare. <laughs> uh, the difference was stark, is stark, is still stark. If we were to look at the city of Richmond there, there's a great deal of, of growth with uh, new forms of businesses and creative energies, the growth of Virginia Commonwealth University in downtown Richmond. But I see something also differently. I still see communities in Northside and Church Hill uh, not benefiting from that kind of economic growth. I see Virginia Union University, a private black historical university, somewhat excluded and marginalized, not having monies poured into that campus. I see black churches experiencing a depletion of their membership because you have black people who have essentially moved out of the city because of the presence of concentrated ghetto poverty, creating certain social conditions that are undesirable, and there's just no development in those areas. That's where it gets tough for me because I still see people, good people, experiencing tough situations because of their racial identity. And so it's tough for me to talk about uh, Richmond in all glowing terms when I go to certain neighborhoods where friends I grew up with live and they work every day, they work hard, they take care of their families, but we see certain situations around them that makes it really tough to totally praise uh, what's happening in, in my home city. My, my home city that I love and will always love. Well, Dr. Kalita Fairfax, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. Thank you. Dr. Kalita Nichols Fairfax is an associate professor of social work at Norfolk State University. She's co-author of an article on Maggie Lena Walker and African-American community development. Coming up next, a walking tour of historic markers and the stories they don't tell. As Confederate monuments across the nation are coming down or being modified, some cities and towns are rethinking the message they convey to tourists History is one of the main reasons tourists visit Fredericksburg, Virginia, and that history tends to focus on the Civil War. With good reason, associate producer Kelly Libby went to Fredericksburg and talked with a geographer about what the markers say and what they're leaving out. I wanted to start here um, because this has been the site of some of the main controversies over Fredericksburg's historical landscape in the past year. This is Stephen Hanna, a professor of geography at the University of Mary Washington. And we're standing in front of what looks like a lump of concrete the size of a tree stump. Uh, we're standing at the corner of William Street and Charles Street, and this in front of us, this two and a half foot roundish stone um, is Fredericksburg's slave auction block. I have to admit, I probably wouldn't have noticed it had Hannah not pointed it out. It's so small. It's very small, and look around. What do you see that relates to this block? Uh, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a very small bronze plaque that says auction block, Fredericksburg's principal auction site in pre-Civil War days for slaves and property. The plaque on this auction block is just one of the markers documented in a mapping project by Hannah and his students. The project has documented a total of 224 markers. But this auction block, it's only one of nine that mentions slavery or emancipation. And even though it's an authentic artifact of the antebellum period, it's not what you'd describe as impressive. You can argue that maybe we shouldn't ever make it impressive because it's shame, it's pain, it's, you know, my ancestors systematically oppressing other Americans' ancestors. But what do you do with that? It's why it's always called the tough stuff of American memory. There's no easy solution. 
Some of the most prominent Confederate monuments, statues of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, for example, were installed during the late 1800s and early 1900s. But Confederate monuments pop up much later in the 20th century, too, during the 1960s. Which is, of course, better known as the Civil Rights Era. We're standing in front of the Richard Kirkland Memorial, which was installed in 1965. The text here says, In memoriam Richard Rowland Kirkland, and then the main inscription reads, At the risk of his life, this American soldier of sublime compassion brought water to his wounded foes at Fredericksburg. The fighting men on both sides of the line called him the Angel of Marie's Heights. You'll notice that it does say CSA, but nowhere is the actual word Confederate even spelled out. And that's one of the reasons why this will never get the same controversy as a statue of Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee, because it's about compassion. It's about a human moment. Yeah, he, one soldier is holding the hand of another soldier, and he's kind of got his... Uh, back resting on his knee while he's giving him water. Yeah. It speaks to humanity. It speaks to caring for somebody even when you're supposedly foes with them. You know, because we can glorify bravery. We can glorify taking care of somebody else even if they are different from you. But in this case, the only difference is what uniform they're wearing. What we choose to put into the landscape is very selective. And the choice of memorializing the battle, but not the causes of the war, hides that history and those connections from us. The fact that you won't find any of these interpretive panels about anything to do with Reconstruction means we have hid everything that happened from 1865 almost until the civil rights era where we have the one sign about the civil rights era from history. So there's 80 years of systematic um, segregation and racism that is absent from the history and makes it much harder for us to make connections to how the antebellum era still matters to our society today. Stories of the Civil War are the most visible on Fredericksburg's landscape, especially the Battle of Fredericksburg. Of the 224 markers dotting Hannah's map, 98 of them describe things like troop movements and how townspeople experienced the war. But down the street from the slave auction block, there is a site that commemorates the Emancipation Proclamation. And you can see that we have a very, very small statue here. The statue was put here by the Episcopal Church in 2013. It's a sculpture of a figure releasing a dove, and it's placed outside the town's history museum along with a small plaque. If you look at this, again, very, very small amount of text, it commemorates the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, Abraham Lincoln's um, proclamation declaring that any slaves who were in Confederate-controlled territory at that point in January 1863 would be freed. It doesn't say anything about local history. It doesn't say that in summer of 1862, 10,000 enslaved women and men escaped through Fredericksburg. The Union controlled Fredericksburg in the summer of 1862 when people ran from plantations, from businesses, from wherever they were enslaved into Fredericksburg. And then they were transported by train up to Aquia Harbor, where then they often got onto boats, ships, and went up to um, Washington. Um, and so there were communities of former enslaved Fredericksburg residents who ended up creating new communities up in Washington, D.C. The stories are there, and they're important stories, and people can know about them, can learn about them, can go online and read about them. But they cannot just happen upon them. And that's what I, I'm critical of. And I think that, you know, for financial reasons, this is what they did. 
mostly, I think. You know, it's expensive. I don't, and again, I'm not at all disparaging the intent and the effort, but there needs to be some space to, I think, be able to say something about what prompted the placement of this statue. And it, they missed an opportunity to not just celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation, but to celebrate the efforts of African-Americans to free themselves prior to it that happened right here. As for the auction block, Hannah says after August 12th, there was disagreement about what to do with it. Because for some people, especially Black residents of Fredericksburg, it's a reminder of a painful past. For now, it remains in place, mostly uninterpreted. For With Good Reason, I'm Kelly Libby. Kelly made her feature for a show in 2018. Just this past spring, the slave auction block was removed from that public site. Stephen Hanna is a professor of geography at the University of Mary Washington. With Good Reason listeners, we want to hear from you. What would you like to see a monument to in your town? Leave us a voicemail at 434-253-0396. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Allison Byrne, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.